You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Jim Gant and Ann Scott Tyson. Jim is a former U.S. Army Green Beret major who operated in some of the most dangerous war zones in the world, most notably in Afghanistan, where he developed a unique strategy that forced a reassessment of how counterinsurgencies should be fought. Ann Scott Tyson is an experienced war correspondent who spent more than a decade of her career in combat environments. A Pulitzer Prize nominee, she has written for the Christian Science Monitor and the Washington Post and contributed to the Wall Street Journal. She is the author of American Spartan, The Promise, The Mission, and The Betrayal of Special Forces Major Jim Gant. Welcome, Jim, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Yeah, thanks a lot, Vince. This is a, a great honor. We're glad to be here. So, Jim, let me, let me start with you because there's a lot of misunderstanding today about what the Green Berets are, what the Special Forces are. And I think that one of the reasons for it is in the last 15 years or so, all the special operations communities kind of had the same mission. It's been a lot of direct action. It's about, there's a the bad guy, go kill the bad guy. And there hasn't been this kind of separation of jobs like it was intended, like where it used to be the joke, like if you wanted to go take an airfield, you'd drop in a ranger battalion. If you wanted to go blow something up, you'd send in the SEALs. If you wanted to train insurgents, that's where the Green Berets were. So let me ask you a little bit about what inspired you to join special forces. Because this is not, there's very few people who actually make it through the grueling, not only the Q course, but the years of training and everything that goes into being in U.S. Army Special Forces? Well, I guess it, it started when I was in high school and I picked up a copy of uh, Robin Moore's book, which uh, spoke about the Green Berets. And I, I found it fascinating to go into another country and learn the language and learn the culture and fight alongside the uh, local people. I just, there was something about that. It was very close, it was very personal. There was something about that that was, that was very intriguing to me. And uh, so it's just uh, something that I had always wanted uh, to do and uh, 
I was a pretty good basketball player in high school, had a couple of basketball scholarships, but mm, just just wasn't what I wanted to do. So I went down to the uh, recruiter, and next thing you know, I was in the Army. Yeah. So that's that's kind of kind of how that worked out, and uh, it was a uh, it was a uh, yeah, it was a wonderful journey. It was it was a wonderful journey. But I was very intrigued by going into uh, a country and fighting alongside uh, those people and Dale Presser Lebert to right. to free the oppressed. And so I from from you know about high school on, I was I was very very intrigued by that. Uh, the book itself opens with a quote from T.E. Lawrence, and it says, "It's their war, and you're you are to help them, not to win it for them." When, and, and you've been compared, as we'll talk about, to kind of T.E. Lawrence and the way that you came up with a strategy to win in Afghanistan. When were you introduced to Lawrence? You talked about reading Robin Moore's book about the Green Berets in Vietnam. That's obviously a, a much more recent phenomenon. Lawrence is kind of considered the model for how special forces was set up. Was this somebody that when you went to Q course or when you went to SF school or did you find him on your own? Actually, I, the first time that I became aware of T.E. Lawrence was during the first Gulf War. I was a non-commissioned officer in the 5th Special Forces Group. Immediately after going through the Q course in language school, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. I went to 5th Group and we started to deploy it was just a, a, a book that I picked up, that I read, that I honestly at that time truly didn't really understand, but it was in the back of my mind. And as time went on, I, I remember the book. I remember what, you know, uh, kind of how he operated. And when I went through the uh, Q course the second time, I picked it up again, read it again, and I understood a lot, lot more of that. I was a lot more mature, a lot older. And it really, really started to uh, to make sense to me. And then in 2007, when I was sent to Iraq, I picked it up, read it for a third time, and really started to understand at that point, after two deployments to Afghanistan, the strong relationships that I had built in Afghanistan, the strong relationships that I had built in Iraq. I had then read it again, and it it just really, really made a lot of sense to me. So reading, reading about T.E. Lawrence and then being able to apply not only some of his tactics but uh, kind of the psychology of how he handled those relationships um, really, really meant, meant a lot to me. And as I started to think about Afghanistan the last time, the, the last deployment, it was kind of inculcated in me, and I, I, I realized that uh, I needed to um, kind of come – Come up with a strategy. Come up with a plan that put those uh, those pillars uh, into place, which I was able to do. It's dramatically different when you take it from a classroom environment of just kind of reading it for the sake of reading it, and then when you actually have applications in the real world and you can see how it played out. I mean, I can imagine that you know Lawrence would be just striking too, because the idea of it's very academic, right? It's World War One. They were so detached from it. We're now a hundred years detached from it. And even when you were doing this in Afghanistan, we were 90 years detached from it. And all of a sudden, it makes a whole lot more sense when you're on the ground, uh, particularly in a culture that doesn't change as rapidly as we do, or some of the same ideas, um, same philosophies and ethics that existed back, even predating Lawrence, mm -hmm. still exist. Yeah, ab absolutely. And there were, I used to, uh, 
I used to, many, many times, I would be thinking about what my next move was going to be. There would be problems uh, within the tribe or how was I going to get people together or what was my next move. And I would literally uh, sit down and uh, have conversations with, uh, with T and uh, kind of think about, okay, you know, here are our options. Here's what we're going to do. What's, wh- how should this work, not only tactically, but again, one of the most important things I, I learned from him was the, uh, the nuances, the importance of not only relationship building, but how you can use those relationships to uh, forge very, very strong alliances, which, which we were able to do on the ground. And then, as I continued to, to read other books written about him, I also became very aware of the, uh, the strain that it put on him psychologically, which I appreciated uh, a lot. And so, you know, any, any, any sentence that has T.E. Lawrence and myself mentioned in it is, is I'm, I'm very, very, very proud of. Well, and I think that one of the main things that does link the two of you together is as a special forces major, as a mid-level officer, um, you not only have to worry about the tactical, the on-the-ground operations, but what you're doing is very important strategically. I mean, uh, David Trey coined the term strategic corporal, and it means something very different than what we're talking about. But in this environment, one person can have a dramatic difference. And you actually, you were put in a position where your job was not only to deal with the tactical side, but also look big picture. And Lawrence, of course, is in that position also. And in many cases... The tactical for Lawrence was working out great, and it was dealing with the people back in, in you know, London and Britain that was a problem. In your case, the tactical was working out great, and as we'll talk about, let's not get ahead of ourselves right yet, dealing with the people back in D.C. was the tricky part. Let me ask you a question before we move on a little bit. Um, you were trained also in, as an intel analyst, at least a little bit. I, yeah. For our listeners, that this, the, the ears perk up when they hear that. <laughs> How did that help or guide the way that you kind of looked at both the tactic side and the strategic side, working in Afghanistan and in Iraq. Well, I've I've told people that have asked me about that in in the past. I always really I really considered myself uh, an intelligence officer who was special forces qualified. The uh, you know in in being being in special forces uh, downrange in combat, a lot of the success depends on really two things: our ability to establish rapport. And how good is the intelligence that, that, we can, that we can get? And so I was very, very attuned to um, gathering intelligence. And uh, it, was, it, was a major, it was a major part of the job. I always felt like that it, it was my responsibility to open up holes. In other words, finding out where there were situations on the ground where we could be successful, finding out where those places were, who the people were that we could talk to. And that was a difficult thing, particularly in Afghanistan. So just just everyday conversations and putting all the pieces together to paint a good picture for not only us on the ground conducting operations, but also for higher headquarters so that they would uh, be able to, you know, change directions, uh, make, make better decisions. I, 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 I always was, was, was leaning towards uh, intelligence types of operations. And, uh, you know, as they say, in- intelligence drives, drives operations. And so it was a very, very important part of what I was doing and something I was, I was very, very proud of because I, I felt like I did a, did a good job with, with gathering 
and uh, uh, disseminating intelligence to my higher headquarters. Well, I think that's interesting, again, being kind of in the middle position. I'm going to use that, that metaphor again because you talk about intelligence drives operations, but in your case, also operations drives intelligence, yeah. where you're doing using operations to collect intelligence. That yeah. intelligence collected drives further operations. Mm-hmm. And it's like this cycle that a lot of people don't quite understand, particularly people who look at intelligence as old-fashioned way of just kind of we have spies out collecting information. It comes back and gets analyzed and then disseminated to the president. This was a sometimes hour-by-hour Particularly if you're trying to get on somebody, find out a good piece of intelligence, you put an operation together very quickly. You know, there's a quick turnaround when it comes to intelligence and op- driving operations, and vice versa. Yeah, it's it's funny. One of the things that I think happened to us in Afghanistan is that uh, we were able to gather so much information that we didn't really always know what to do with any of it. And when I say that, I kind of mean the higher, the, the, the higher echelons because so much was going on. There was, there were so many people, there was so, so much. And one of the things that happened over there quite often is they would say, Hey, there's a, there's Taliban over in this village. And the reality of it was they weren't Taliban. The people that were telling you that were Taliban. It was just a tribal conflict. And so you had to, you had to be very, very careful about, about targeting and things like that because you really had to to get to the bottom of it because they would they would point fingers at each other taliban was very 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 good at that as were as were the tribes right and so you had to be very very careful about about saying you know sending reports to hire saying hey this is information versus hey this is intelligence i i have confirmed this this is true versus hey this is what i've been told and so it was uh yeah, it was it was challenging, but it was a lot of fun as well. Well, and I think that shows the kind of unique benefits of special operations, in particular of the Green Berets, because there's supposed to be, and most of the time there is, an understanding of the culture of whatever society you're going into. And if you don't understand the tribal rivalries that go back thousands of years, you don't understand how the Taliban and ethnic rivalries and everything else is involved, then you're just going to fall for this nonsense. And the only way to be an effective intelligence analyst is to have the understanding of how these dynamics work on the ground. Yeah, interestingly enough, the, the, the very first deployment in late 2002, I'll, I will never forget, I, we did not discuss tribes, we did not discuss any of that uh, in pre-deployment, nor really on the ground. It wasn't until several weeks on the ground until we were able to start figuring out the importance of, of uh, the tribes and how it, how, it, how it linked in with, with what it was that we were trying to do. And um, as, as the understanding grew of what it was that uh, we were trying to accomplish, you know, the importance of the relationships, the importance of the tribes, as you said, they go back, you know, hundreds and thousands of years um, was it, 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 it became clearer, although it was never, never crystal clear. But uh, in retrospect, I, I, I am actually uh, disappointed in the amount of information that uh, I had access to, that we had access to prior to that first, that first time going in the box there in Afghanistan. And, uh, and hopefully that's one of the things that we've learned. We, we really, really need to understand the culture. We need to understand the history. We need to understand, uh, have a much better understanding of what's going on the ground before uh, we conduct uh, operations. And I hope, hopefully, we've learned that from uh, both Afghanistan and Iraq. So, Ann, as I mentioned in your bio, you, you had a, a, at least a decade 
of experience being embedded in very rough combat environments. Uh, but you grew up in an environment that perhaps would naturally translate to war correspondent, kind of lay out your, your background, your book. You, but you were very independent as a kid, but you come from an upper middle class family that not, wouldn't necessarily say, let me go get rough in Afghanistan for a couple of months. What led you to decide to do the job that you did? Well, I had been a foreign correspondent, and that did somewhat come out of my upbringing because I traveled a lot with my family growing up. My dad was a professor. And I then, well, it actually was was 9-11 occurred, and my newspaper at the time, the Christian Science Monitor, asked me if I would cover the Pentagon because uh, the beat had been divided between one correspondent actually had been covering the State Department and the Pentagon, and I felt that it was something that I had to do as a journalist. I had to respond to that call at a time when I knew that information about what happened would be critical. So I, I launched into it, and I had worked in China for many years. That's where I started out in my professional career. And I was initially worried that covering the military, covering the Pentagon would be very challenging. I mean, it would be similar to China. They speak a different language. It's a, it's a large bureaucracy. Um, might not be particularly uh, welcoming to me as a, as a female correspondent, sort of male-dominated. But I quickly realized that, as with China, the military was a world that very badly needed translation for the American public. I quickly found out that my editors, my family, my friends, they didn't understand what I was talking about. They didn't know the basics of what, you know, how the military was organized, the names of the different sizes of combat units and so forth. So I realized that there was a need. And of course, very quickly after that, the war in Afghanistan kicked in. And um, by the time Iraq rolled around, I was the most experienced person on my paper with that knowledge, with that ability to translate. So yet again, my editor came to D.C., sat down with me over lunch, and basically asked me if I, if I would be part of the invasion, and it was my job. I realized that I, I needed to say yes because otherwise our readers, the American public, would not have the insight on what happens during an operation. It was very, very different waiting for the Iraq war to begin um, not as a bystander, but as a person who knew that they were going to be there. So from the get-go, I started sort of feeling the anticipation that perhaps a military member would feel being um, going into to that environment. Well, as Jim mentioned, there's, there's a difference between information and intelligence. And I think that you, you mentioned something in the book, and this is something that a lot of war correspondents I've talked to, particularly ones covering the last 15 years, have mentioned. The fact that a lot of people are willing to just take what the Pentagon gives them in press statements and other things like that. What made you decide to say, I can't just go with the official statements of the DOD. I need to get to the front lines and find out what's really going on on the ground. Because that's a, that's a conscious decision that a lot of people don't make. That the only way to truly know how to report on this war is to basically put yourself in harm's way instead of staying back in the green zone or staying back and just getting force-fed information from the DOD? Well, I mean, it, it was a difficult personal decision. I, I have children. I have a family. At the same time, I guess 
it might have been some of my experience as a foreign correspondent. I mean, I had spent years in China uh, learning language. I know that that only goes so far. Sitting in the Pentagon briefing room only goes so far. And it was only underscored to me many times, I can't tell you how many, that I would come back from uh, an extended trip in Iraq or Afghanistan and be standing next to a general who would who would say things that were simply inaccurate, who did not know where the forces were, were aligned, um, and be in a position of correcting them, which was very disturbing to me. But um, it, and, and there were times when the defense secretary was, would question a reporter who had been downrange and, and seemed to be asking more information because their information is also not only perhaps limited, but um, filtered. Mm -hmm. And so it's essential to break out of that. It's the only way to do it, in my opinion. What was the value, and, and you certainly did this, what was the value of talking to, and I was one of these, talking to the grunt on the ground, right, the, the enlisted you know, junior officers, but at the same time, again, you talk in the book about the idea of going on a helicopter arrived David Petraeus and kind of talking to everybody in between. Uh, a lot of people don't do that also, right? They're, you know, they get the war's eye view from being embedded with a particular like an infantry unit, um, or they're kind of walking around with the four stars and all the brass. Do you find it integral, and maybe this is a softball question, but I want to hear you talk about it. Do you find it integral to kind of get a wide picture from different ends of the spectrum when you're dealing with a wartime environment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that... Um, on one hand, I, uh, I mean, this is just talking about going out on, on operations because, I mean, that is, that is where the rubber meets the road. Um, being with small level, you know, units, platoons, um, that, is, that is where you really see what works and what doesn't. And what I felt was, you know, there was some controversy over should you be an embedded reporter with military units or stay outside and be independent. And the truth um, to me was that if you are with a unit and you are out in an operation, if there's no way to hide whether things work the way they're supposed to or don't. You are going to know, did this operation go down the way it was supposed to? What, what went wrong? Mm -hmm. And so by having that understanding of how things, what's, cap what's possible and how things work and sometimes go wrong, then you have the knowledge necessary to ask intelligent questions to the battalion commanders, the colonels, and on up to someone like General Petraeus. So, Jim, let me, let me skip ahead to uh, Iraq in 06 and 07, which is, people remember back again, you know, uh, this is now history. It's extraordinary. Kind of, they probably, some days think of it as being yesterday, but we're now more than a decade separated from the time of some of the worst fighting in Iraq. This is when it truly looked as though Iraq was going to break out into a full civil war, and some might have argued it did. And you were put in um, as... Uh, trying to help a Iraqi unit, kind of with, again, with the Green Berets are designed to do. And you got them to trust you in many respects by fighting by their side. In many cases, showing you were willing to have their backs. Mm -hmm. I wonder how much this was a conscious decision or if this was just instinct. This was one of these things where you walked in and you said, okay, this is, this is my new kind of brothers in arms. I want to make sure we all trust each other. Or did you think of that? This is my plan walking in the door of how I'm going to get them to trust me, how I'm going to make this work. And maybe it's a mixture of both. 
but I wonder kind of how much you pre-plan what seems almost kind of like on off the cuff when you move forward. I've never I've never been asked that before. That's a fantastic question. I I haven't really at at, at that point I I haven't really thought about this, but I I can tell you that that at the, at that particular point um I had a fantastic commander there, Colonel uh, Chipper Lewis, and basically he said to me, Jim, this quick reaction force at the national police is a, a national police level unit uh, is a militia and we believe that they are involved in some sectarian killings i need you to go down there and figure out what is going on that was the mission statement so right off the bat I, I realized a couple of things, which is first, the only way that I'm going to be able to find out what is really going on is for that commander and his men to trust me. Not, not establish rapport, not any of that, but to absolutely positively trust me. So first, I had to spend a lot of time with them, just a lot of time with them getting to know them, what are their daily problems, and not only that, but of course drinking the chai and watching TV and becoming becoming friendly. And, and the second part of that to me always has been and always will be uh, going on combat operations. And I was taught train, advise, assist, and lead, particularly early on on these types of missions. And so I didn't go, go into that halfway. I went into it 100%. It was also at this time that uh, I was just blessed with, with a phenomenal, phenomenal interpreter. To, and uh, as, as, as an aside, he, uh, I was able to get him to the United States in 2007. He lived with me for a year, and he's doing fantastic now. Uh, as 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 a U.S. citizen, he's just a wonderful person. But uh, he and I trained a lot. We talked a lot, and so I essentially had someone who was with me 24/7 that allowed me to go into these types of situations. And it became very very apparent very quickly the first operation that uh, they were very hesitant. They um, they, they, there was a lot of guys in the unit, but they, they, they were hesitant in a way to, to do some of these things. And I realized that the best thing that I could do for them is to show them my willingness to not only fight, but to die. And it didn't take that many operations before they had an incredible amount of, of trust in me. Where that became more of an issue is them trusting my small team collectively and that was able to work itself out uh, in Balad in in uh, late 2006 early 2007 most intense fighting that I've ever been a part of uh, we fought every single day and the first few days in in Balad uh, my you know my small group of guys would would go into these to these very very you know big big gun battles with you know, a battalion of, of, of Iraqi uh, policemen, and they wouldn't, they would not, uh, they wouldn't go into the fighting initially. And my guys were pretty upset about that. 
But I knew if we would just continue to do that, that eventually that they would, uh, they would get it. They would understand. They would see it. It was, it was more about them seeing it than it was telling them that we needed to do it. Right, it was teaching it. by example versus... That's like, exactly you know. right. And uh, several weeks into it, we looked up, and there they were, constantly, constantly. Uh, another couple of weeks, and now they're in the lead, not being told to be in the lead. But just they wanted to be in, they wanted to be there because they wanted to prove their manhood and that they were warriors and that they cared. And so I, I to this day, I really, really stick to that, that, that part of part of our mission being Green Berets is to not just train, advise and assist, but be willing to go out on the front lines and fight alongside our, our allies. And when you put us in situations where we, we really can't do that. It really takes away from, from, from what it is. And by the time I, I left Iraq, I, I, was, I was just so proud of, of uh, Colonel Doffer, the, the Iraqi commander in that unit. They had molded themselves into one of the most trustworthy and best national police units in the entire country. And uh, I was very, very, very proud of that. And as you say, um, Iraq... Iraq during that time, when I think about it, it was uh, the violence was just off the charts. I mean, it was an every everyday thing; it never stopped. Sometimes we would get three or four raids a day, and we would just hit target after target after target. And it was it, it was great because anytime something was going on, they needed to find out, gather intelligence, or 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 or, or you know execute targets, whatever whatever it was, uh, we, we would normally get the call for that. So it was, uh, it was, it was a fantastic time, very, very stressful. And, uh, kind of as an aside to that too, I, I mentioned Colonel Chipper Lewis, what a, what a fantastic commander. And he, he, uh, we, we remained friends after, after we came home and, uh, he, he would call me up and he would, you know, say, Hey Jim, you know, I, I, I feel I've, I'm, I'm just really sorry about all that. You know, I sent you in to really, really bad situations. You guys did fantastic, but I, I just can't, you know, I just can't right now. I just, I just can't think about it. And, uh, later on, uh, Colonel Lewis, uh, he he took his own life. He he committed uh, he committed suicide in, in something that's that's very difficult uh, for me. And uh, you know I tried to support him. And, and that thing you know you're always worried about your own guys and you try to take care of your own guys. And something I've talked about since then is is don't forget your commanders. Mm -hmm. You know if you were if you were subordinate there and you had commanders, you you need to reach out to them occasionally and tell them that you love them and that you care about them and that. They did a good job, and and uh, you know we we might be able to save some lives that way. But uh, uh, yeah, when I think about Iraq, I, I think about the heaviest fighting of my life. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. 
That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Let me ask you, you talked about returning from Iraq, because I think that this plays an interesting role that people don't understand unless they've been in this kind of a situation. And you've obviously kind of given a hint a little bit about how hard it is to transition back to civilian society. Um, how difficult was it for you? Because you've there's a letter to your father that's in the book that I think is really striking. Uh, and this is before you kind of redeployed uh, back into Afghanistan about, and, and I remember, let me give you a little personal, I, I try not to insert myself as much as I can, but back in the Balkans in the 90s where I was a young, like barely in my 20s, and I saw what we all saw whoever was deployed to the Balkans in the 90s where there was mass graves or everything else. And then going back and hearing my friends talk about their problems. I'm like, boy, do you not understand? I mean, yes, those are big problems for you, but I've just looked at 500 bodies all our age, you know, who were gunned down because of their religion. And it's kind of the perspective was just warped out of its mind. And of course, coming back to the United States in especially 07, 08, when everyone was focused on the economy and the election, no one was talking about Iraq. How hard was it to transition back to where everyone around you was not your close-knit brotherhood, not the people that you kind of could trust your life to, but it was average, everyday civilians? Yeah, I had a, I, I was very blessed and fortunate that I was I was a lot lot older than. Uh, when when the war in Afghanistan and the wars in Iraq kicked off, I, w- I was in my mid-30s, so I was a little bit older than a lot of the 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 uh, you know in in the conventional army and things like that had to do with it. Although in as in special forces, you know, we 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 generally are a little bit bit older. Um, I, I can tell you that <laughs> coming home, I. Uh, I struggled a lot. I, I don't know that that I ever that that I've ever really come home from from Iraq. Um, don't know that I I ever will. I am and have been blessed and and fortunate to have a a wonderful family and I that has supported me. And more than anything, I am fortunate in the fact that my best friend happens to be my wife and she was there not only did she experience the wars but we experienced it together and so throughout my struggles she she has been able to to just to just help me in a way that's just just you just can't measure it and the thing that people forget, that I don't forget, that I think about every day, is that she has PTSD as well. Mm. And she has been able to handle it better in many ways than I have, but it's still there. So there's there's a mutual understanding there. Um, you know, there, there's been so many books written about PTSD and coming home and, and those things. One thing that I have really, really noticed about this, just because... All my friends, all the guys that I went into battle with, they deal with this issue, and we deal with it in different ways. But it is so individual. 
you know, as you know, seeing these things, it's, it's, it's so individual. What triggers it? Mm-hmm. How do you feel? How do you feel about it? Um, uh, the, the, the different things that, that went on. You know, some people aren't impacted as much. Some people are impacted a, a lot more. Um, reintegrating yourself back in, into society is, is an incredible challenge, um, particularly for, for those of us that, that spent a lot of time, time in combat. But I also will say that anybody who deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan in any capacity, you know, deals with it in, in, in some sort of way. But then again, everybody, everybody deals with it. Look at these, look at these poor kids in these school shootings, Mm -hmm. police officers, you know, ambulance workers, you know, mothers, fathers who are dealing with tragedies in their homes and all, all, it's just, it's just one of those things that, uh, you know, going to war and, and, and being in combat, um, that's what we attribute, you know, PTSD, PTSD, but it's, 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 it's a problem for a lot of people. Yeah. I appreciate you talking about that. I mean, it can't be easy right, to talk about this stuff. Um, let me, let me ask you about, uh, one tribe at a time, because I think this is where, uh, we can really get into some of the nitty gritty on this. So in between deployments, you decided to hunker down and change the way people thought about things. And so can you describe a little bit about it, not necessarily how it was put into practice, kind of mm-hmm. the thought process behind it. So we'll talk about how it was put into practice in a second. Um, and how it was a departure from the past. Um, and really kind of what made you think of it. I mean, kind of, you're not a four-star general. Your job is not to come up with grand strategy for the U.S. military. Um, this had to have been somewhat nerve-wracking because if you pissed off the wrong people that could have been the end of your career right yeah well it was uh i i had just spent i had had two uh, deployments to afghanistan uh, one to iraq and i had spent a couple years on a, a a special projects team and uh i i really really wanted to get back in the fight and at this time i was an instructor in the last phase of special forces training, uh, which emphasizes the unconventional warfare portion of that. And I took that job very, very seriously. And I, I, it, it was my job to know doctrine inside and out. I really felt like that that was my job. I love to read. I read three or four hours every single day. I always have. I just love to read. So I just really, really got deep into the doctrine and reading and reading and reading so that I could be a good instructor. As much as I enjoyed that, I really wanted to get back in the fight. So <laughs> after being told to shut up and do my job over and over and over and over by, by the branch and my commanders and all that, finally they said, okay, just we're going to send you back to Afghanistan on a transition team, not as a SF guy, but mm-hmm. just on a transition team to help train the Afghan National Army. And I was super excited about that. So I got in contact with the guy in charge there in Afghanistan, say, hey, I'd really like to go back to Konar. I have some some relationships there. I know it really well. He said, sure, that's no problem. So I had I had about I, I had to go to CGSC. So I had about eight or nine months before I was going to deploy. And so I sat down and I said, how am I going to do this? How am I going to be successful? So I took all of my, my past experience in Afghanistan. I took doctrine. Okay, this is, this is what we should be doing. And I just 
kind of came up with a plan on how I would do this. If I could do anything that I wanted, how would I do this to be successful? And I just uh, uh, set out and uh, uh, started jotting some things down on paper. And I'm, we are very, very close to Stephen Pressfield, the author of Gates of Fire and The Art of War and some different, different things. And I was kind of talking to him about that. And he said, Jim, you got, you got to write this. You got to get this down. And it was about that same time that he came out with a fantastic video series that you can still see on YouTube, YouTube called It's the Tribe, Stupid. And so we started going back and forth. And he said, hey, Jim, if you write it, I'll help get it together. I'll put it together. I'll get somebody who can, you know, get it all together and get the photos together because I know that's not your strong point and we'll we'll get it out there and so that's that's what I did I read everything that I could get my hands on culture history language just everything it just really okay how could we do this and uh, came up with uh, one tribe at a time and gave it to Steve and he gave it to a guy named printer bowler and uh, they put it together in a nice package and it just so happens that uh, Steve is really close friends with a guy named Jim Mattis, and the first person that a guy named Jim Mattis that, that, is... <laughs> that got uh, the 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 first person that got their hands on it was was General Mattis, and that helps just a bit. Yeah, that helps. And uh, uh, General Mattis uh, sat down with uh, General Petraeus. And uh, eventually, Admiral Olson, and next thing you know, I, I'm getting an email from Admiral Olson, and there we yep. go. And there is, there is a little, uh, I would like to say, um, be careful what you ask for, because <laughs> you may get it. Yeah, right. You know, you're, you're, a, you're basically, you're an 04, yeah. and all of a sudden, the 010s are starting to pay attention to you, and it's yeah. like, whoops. Yeah, skipped everybody yeah. in between. That kind of the chain of commands was yeah. not supposed to work that way. Yeah, right. uh, but I I do know this for a fact. If if for instance, had I written the exact same thing, and I would have taken it, and this is no knock against anyone, but had I taken it to my battalion commander, for instance, today, sir, you know, would it, nothing would have happened right. happened with it. And that's just you know that's just that's just the way it is. Nothing against him. It's just the system. Right. Just 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 the way it is. So. Uh, there was a lot of hard work in one tribe at a time, but uh, I was I was I was blessed and fortunate to be able to get it in the right people's hands. So, and let me ask you because this comes at a very opportune time because there's not only one transition taking place with Jim going back to Afghanistan, but there's a transition politically here in the United States taking place where this found its way in a David Petraeus in, in Olson's hand at exactly the right time when everyone is scrambling to look for a new strategy for Afghanistan. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. At the time, at the Afghan war was considered to be at a stalemate. And that's what a report from the previous commander, General McChrystal, had stated. So President Obama was trying to figure out a strategy in sort of a very methodical way. And it was clear that, well, General Petraeus was brought in to replace McChrystal. And a Petraeus had a great deal of experience with counterinsurgency and had helped rewrite the army manual on counterinsurgency and realized that his counterinsurgency math, as he put it, did not add up. 
there were not enough forces to secure the country, uh, not enough foreign forces, not enough trained Afghan government forces. And the solution that he was gravitating towards, which was highlighted in One Tribe at a Time, as Jim wrote, was to recruit the local tribes to defend themselves. Afghanistan is primarily rural, so you have large swaths of territory that was controlled by the Taliban. And um, so this, this idea came to the forefront just at the time when key decisions were being made on the future of our strategy in Afghanistan. But these were key decisions because if you went the counterinsurgency route, you're talking about tens of thousands of U.S. soldiers that would have had to have been sent into Afghanistan. This, on the other hand, could be done with, yes, incredibly highly trained soldiers, but a much smaller footprint and a much more politically possible way of fighting the war as well. The issue, of course, is the timeline, the ability to do this very quickly. And it kind of flies in the face of this longer relationship building thing. That was obviously a debate taking place at the highest levels. And you actually do a very good job in laying it out because we're now more than a decade removed from these conversations. Yeah, exactly. I think that um, the, I mean, one of the great strengths of the strategy also, I mean, yes, it was more economical, involved fewer U.S. forces, but it it took into account Afghan history and the way Afghanistan had been um, had been governed, um, primarily with the tribes taking a leading role. It it really was very suited to Afghan culture, and what better situation than to have the villagers themselves protecting their own villages, their their own kalats, their household their households, and defending their tribal territory. It's a very natural natural thing there. Um, but clearly, yes, there was a, a political pressure um, to wind down the war in Afghanistan, which eventually kicked in in a way that um, that was undermining to this approach, which really does. I mean, I mean, there there are historical parallels to this type of approach taken by the British um, uh, many many decades ago in Afghanistan, and they would send, uh, as they called them, political officers out to the frontier between Afghanistan and Pakistan to live with the tribes for three or five years at a time. And um, with our rotations and our, our political uh, clock, we did not have the, the ability to do that. So, and Jim talked about going back to Konar province, since I, that, that's, for those of you who don't know, that is the Wild West, or the Wild East, I guess, of Afghanistan. Uh, this is right on the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. For pop culture aficionados out there, this is where Lone Survivor takes place, where Restrepo, which if you haven't seen that, you need to. It's not a movie, it's a documentary. Uh, some of the worst fighting, some of the most highly contested areas, because many of them were controlled by the Taliban. What was your first impression of Konar province? Because it's, it's this really interesting mix between being some of the most beautiful land on earth but also some of the deadliest place you can possibly go. Well, I mean, it was, uh, yes, I, I totally agree. I mean, seeing that from, from the air, it's, it's just gorgeous. It's sort of like National Geographic gorgeous. And one would wish for a day that you could go hiking in, right. those, in those mountains. 
but I think that um, I had spent time, again, with conventional units. I had spent time with some special forces teams. And I guess one very um, vivid memory I have is going out of the Kalat where, where Jim and his team were based in this village with this tribe, protected this with this tribe, and going out on a stroll um, with no body armor. Um, he and an and Afghan colleague had, had their rifles, um, but I was just dressed in some Afghan clothing, uh, you know, that I'd picked up in a market in Virginia, and we were walking around, and I really felt like he's, he is executing what special forces are supposed to do to the extent that I have not encountered anywhere else. I well, mean, I was gonna, I'm sorry to interrupt. I was going to ask you, how long did it take to realize that this wasn't the same old SF unit that you now, that you've been, you've been, again, you've, uh, more than a decade in combat environments, and all of a sudden you're seeing things done, I think, the way that when SF was envisioned back during the Truman administration, and certainly when it was kind of geared up during Kennedy, and what they did with the Montagnards in Vietnam, how it was envisioned from the very beginning. Yeah, absolutely. And um, one of, I mean, I mean, first of all, in, in, uh, in speaking with Jim, I knew that he was very attuned to these cultures. I knew that he, he had insights that were, were already unique and beyond what, what you normally, what I normally encountered, again, even with other special forces teams. And I think that some were, were headed in this direction more, although they were not the majority. But again, this was really walking the walk. I mean, to, uh, um, and, and as with my experience as a foreign correspondent, the special forces were the, the closest thing to really integrating themselves. I mean, because they had the language skills. And so I realized that if you are going to draw close to these people, if you're going to get them to talk to you, I mean, just as an, a, a reporter, I knew this, you, you, had to, um, you had to have that level of genuine contact. I mean, um, I guess another way to look at it is, stri is strictly in terms of the barriers. I mean, with your, when you're with, say, a conventional military unit, they're the up armors, there's the body armor, there are the helmets and the sunglasses, there are the controls on their operations, all of those things that divide you from the people. And when I got to Jim and his team, those things had completely fallen away. And that was very striking to me. Let me ask you a personal question if I can. Did you notice how the toll of all this was taking on Jim, like how much, at what point did you notice how difficult kind of the stress was and how difficult the day-to-day -day of constantly being on these combat operations? I mean, you're very, again, you, you, this is all in the book, so, so you, you've said it before, but I'm wondering, you, you, something you noticed immediately, this is a different operation, this is a different way of, this is a different leader. How quickly did you notice man, this guy's got the world on his shoulders. Like, did that come as quickly as noticing that he was winning the war in a different way? I, um, well, um, just to back up a little bit, I, I first met Jim in person before he deployed to mm -hmm. Afghanistan in uh, when he was doing language training before he went. And I would say that I immediately knew and recognized um, that he had um, combat stress 
and that uh, <clears throat> that that had taken a toll on him. Um, again, that's something that many many right, of the, many of the point. people I interviewed had that. I knew that the army was, you know, and the Marines for that matter were deploying and redeploying people who were, were going back in with diagnosed or undiagnosed um, PTSD um, of various levels. And I also knew because I had heavily reported on it that um, PTSD does become compounded with repeated exposure. So um, yes, he clearly, you know, he clearly had that. And I also knew that he was a person who uh, was 100% committed to the mission. And therefore, he, he, the only way that um, he knew how to encounter this was to take everything on his shoulders, was to you know, um, give it his, his all, um, not leave anything, um, not leave anything behind, essentially. Um, but in a, in a sort of a counterintuitive way, I knew that if he didn't do that, he wouldn't be able to live with himself right. afterwards. And, and sorry, Jim, we're talking about you like you're not sitting right here. Uh, <laughs> let me go back to you, actually, because let's actually talk about the One Tribe strategy, because we talked about it in a kind of a very broad sense. But I'd, I'd like to, if you could take us almost like what is a day-to-day -day approach to this. Uh, I want people, to, people should go read this for themselves. But if you can kind of lock it down, like what does it mean on a day-to-day -day operational basis to do this strategy of, living and, and dying potentially and fighting within these cultures and these tribes. Yeah, sure. I, I, and I, th I think this would be a good time to mention to you as, as, as a part of who I was as, as an SF officer, as a Green Beret growing up in that culture, when I started putting this together, I, you know, my, my heroes, the guys that I read about, the guys that I wanted to be like were the special forces guys in Vietnam. I mean, what an incredible, what a, just an incredible history that, that we have. And, and particularly in Vietnam, you know, with, 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 with the Montagnards, mm -hmm. as you said, this, the, 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 CIG, the, the, the civilian irregular defense groups, all of that stuff. So I, I read everything that I could get my hands on, on that. And, uh, so, you know, the strategy in and of itself, as I, I, I use the word doctrine, but that's who we were. This is what we were supposed right. to be doing. So it was simply taking, you know, our doctrine, overlaying it uh, on the culture. So, you know, fast forward to the execution of it. There were some things that, uh, there were a lot of things that I just, I, I just was not prepared for. One of them was the difficulty, as you've talked about, of my tactical responsibilities, laying that over those tactical responsibilities, making sure that me and my guys survive the right. day, okay? Survive the day versus wanting to have operational impact in the CONAR and having a strategic impact on the war. So it wasn't just about, uh, for instance, uh, um, uh, pre-combat inspections which you have to do every single day. It wasn't about just about, okay, is, is everyone's weapons clean? Have we been to the range? Is all, are all the guns zeroed? Are all the vehicles good to go? Does everybody know the plan? If you don't get that right, people die. At the same time, okay, 
to today's mission? How am I going to have operational impact? Who are we going to go see? What what's the outcome of 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 what it is that we're trying to do? And so I was also very well aware of the fact that we 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 couldn't take a lot of guys down there to do this. We couldn't have two or three hundred guys down there. We couldn't have four or five six teams. We needed to keep our our footprint really small. And so, well, how is this? How is this? How is this going to work? Well, immediately, it became apparent. You know, anytime you go into a combat zone, the three most important things are security, security, and security, yeah. or you get killed. Right. Um, so, how does that work? Well, the tribes secure themselves; they're secure. So, what is? How can we connect into that? And that's where having the prior relationship with uh, Malik Norafzal. Sitting Bull, as as we called him, um, uh, that relationship and that relationship with his family and the elders immediately gave us the most important thing that we had to have to operate, which was security. And it also, very importantly, gave us um, what what I kind of term uh, it, it gave us psychological security. In other words, uh, you know, a lot of those smaller bases, particularly in in the Konar, they're getting hit. They're right. getting hit. They're getting hit. They're getting no hit. There's no QRF. There's no. There's nothing. They're getting hit. Yeah. They're getting hit. And um, uh, you know, people would come down and say, "Oh my God, Jim, where's your security?" I'm like, what do you mean? Where's our security? I have four thousand people protecting me no one's going to get in here and so you know that 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 was a big help and then what it became about was leveraging relationships how do i bring the tribes together can the can the tribes know that we are going to support them because now you're talking about the ability to secure large portions of 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 the ground more people will come more people come more tribal elders will come and that's exactly what happened and there was a point in time where we were speaking to the three most powerful tribal leaders in all of Konar. We were right there, I, I believe. And um, at that time, uh, the, uh, I had fantastic support at the Siege of level and the Sifsok level. Um, but I just I, I had a, a sort of commander that just wouldn't allow me to take that that last step to, to, to tie those guys in. Um, the one thing I'll say about the daily operations was we would have uh, we would have team meetings every evening. Every evening we'd have team meetings. We would talk about, uh, you know, what we did that day. We would talk about uh, what we were going to do the next day. And then I would always try to bring something in every single day to these meetings, some, some lesson learned or something that we needed to, to start preparing for. So we'd lay out the next day. And uh, I usually pulled guard duty uh, every day, which I'm very proud of. I usually pulled the last shift from about 4 a.m. To, to, to 6 a.m. every morning. And whatever it was that we had planned would change by 6.05. <laughs> and so that was something for people in the military that's difficult. Hey, guys, I know we thought we were going to go to the Chalet Valley and, and look for IEDs or whatever it was we were doing. But uh, Haji John Dodd and Haji John Shaw have showed up, and they want to drink tea. They want to talk about some stuff, so you guys hold on. Or a, uh, a villager, a little girl would get burned. 
or there would be a gunfight or you know all of these different different things would would happen so that took a little bit of getting used to because in the military we're so used to timelines and and all of that well that's the advantage of being a small unit you can be very adaptive you can be you know you can improvise every day it's not like you're an infantry battalion where it's just, absolutely you know. absolutely and one of the things unless i was on an operation one of the things i quickly learned over there was just don't wear a watch don't wear a watch it just it's it's irrelevant it just doesn't matter unless you're going on a specific operation with times and, and things like that. So, um, and it also was, uh, was very, very stressful in the fact that the most important thing that I personally did every single day was my face-to-face contact with everyone. Not only my guys, but the tribal leaders, the government officials, the U.S. military officers that were flying in, the senators, mm-hmm. the generals. So pretty much everything I did, important things that I did, were, was, was based on my ability to, to build relationships. Now, that sounds like a lot of fun, but yeah. you know, yeah. when, when you do it 18 hours a day right. for an extended period of time, it, 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 becomes, it becomes very, very difficult. And, oh, by the way, they're shooting at you, and there's IEDs and all of those, all of those other things. So daily, just the daily operations... Uh, were very difficult, but uh, just incredible. I remember I would pretty much every every day at some point during the day, it would just occur to me, oh my gosh, is this not the most incredible thing ever? And so I had an appreciation for what I was doing, but I was tired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, let me ask you, because there's a really fascinating dynamic at play here where people may at least have an inkling of knowledge about Muslim culture, the idea that the men and the women are, are, especially in certain societies, are very separate. And there's places that Jim and his men couldn't go. And people actually that might have information or that we can turn into intelligence that might only come from the women of the tribe or the kids in the tribe. And you, although you know, in a very unique situation, actually could be an intelligence asset because you're talking to these women, you're talking to these kids throughout the whole province. How much did that play? How much did you see yourself as aiding Jim in his overall strategic mission by having that entire, I mean, that's half the country and half the demographic, and they'd been ignored because I know that there are now women soldiers and others, and special, even special operations units that are embedded, you know, but you had lived with them, you understood them perhaps better than anyone else might. How did that help the overall mission? I, I think it was, I think it helped with the security overall on on many, many levels. Um, I mean, just to give you a sense of sort of the, the, the intimacy of the situation with the tribe, when I first met Malik Norafzal, um, the tribal elder with whom Jim had a longstanding relationship, he told me that he considered me his daughter-in-law. Um, they obviously don't do that very lightly. I mean, that was a lot. Of course, it was based on Jim's relationship, but he also asked me, he said, you know, when you come to live with us in the village, I want you, you have to um, respect Pashtunwali, which means Pashtunwali is the code of ethics and behavior by which the Pashtuns, the primary ethnic group in Afghanistan, lives by. And I agreed to do that, and I did that. I, I dressed appropriately, I behaved appropriately. And 
that allowed me to be welcomed constantly into the inner quarters of these large collats where Jim and his men could not go. In fact, no men at all could go other than the men who were relatives, mm. who were the husbands or other close male relatives of, of those families. That, in, if you're talking about relationship building, I mean, for me to, um, first of all, well, for me to go in, to encounter them, to use my, uh, my pasha that I had taught myself to speak with them, to learn about their daily life, I could pick up, I could pick up insights into what was important to them um, that were, I think, valuable to the team. But on a, on a completely different level, there is a, um, one of the core concepts of Pashtunwali is called namus. And that is the imperative. I mean, it's an honor-based society, and it's the imperative for Afghan men in this traditional culture to protect their homes, their land, and the female members of their households. So by Jim bringing me there, this concept of a namus um, applied, meaning that they all had to protect me. Mm-hmm. And so that enhanced our security greatly. They were honor bound to protect us with me being there as sort of a top priority. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a little bit complex and very, very counterintuitive. Um, but it, it did work in our, in our favor. And, um, I was, I was also able on the Intel side, um, as a, as a reporter, um, I was, I had this sort of they they also allowed me to to interview them at length and i interviewed um former taliban members in detail about how they were recruited into the taliban um how they uh you know how they rose up through the ranks and i think that a lot of insights that i gained um on the other side talking to the men and interviewing them was also useful So let me ask you, Jim, was there a time when you were able to pull yourself mentally out of the fight the day-to-day and assess how this might be perceived back in D.C.? How how that, I mean, you had great top cover, Petraeus, Olson, Mattis, but there might come a time, and I'm foreshadowing here, there will come a time where that top cover goes and does something else. Was there ever a time where you kind of stopped and said, this is so outside of not the mainstream of how SF was supposed to be, because it's exactly what SF was supposed to be, but this is so outside the mainstream of what SF has become that this is going to come back to bite me in the ass. And I know that you actually mentioned that the person that's going to come and stab you in the back will be wearing a special forces tab. Yeah. You talk a little bit about when you started realizing that this was, uh, that the, the perception was less, Lawrence of Afghanistan and more Colonel Kurtz back in D.C. Yeah, well, I, I, one of the things that I, I, I had a relatively successful military career, and I was very loyal to my subordinates, and I was equally loyal to uh, my commanding officer. And uh, as, as you mentioned, I, I can't overemphasize how much the top cover, as we call it, allowed me to be so incredibly successful for the first year or so that I was on the ground. I had, (laughs) 
I had as much top cover as a tactical commander probably in the history of warfare. I mean... Well, I, I want to interrupt I, you because there's, if you Google you in pictures, there's pictures of you with John McCain. Yes. There's pictures, like, basically, you had everybody just saying, do what you're doing. Yes, yeah. yes. And so that, that, you know, that protected me from a lot of the middle management and the bureaucracy and, and, and those kind of, of things. But... As you said, those guys started to move on to to other assignments. And there was a a specific point in time where I did realize that pretty much uh, the the people that had brought me in and, uh, you know, the people that not only brought me in and cared about what I was doing on the ground, but cared about me personally were starting to leave and... I I pretty much it wasn't so much that there was a that I was worried about a, a perception of what I was doing, but there definitely became a point in time where um, I got the feeling that you know through personal conflicts or, or just different things that my higher chain of command um, not only was no longer being helpful in the mission, but they they. They didn't care about me and my guys on a on a on a personal level, and to be frank and extremely honest, I just didn't give a damn, and I was just going to keep doing what I what I knew was was the best thing to do on the ground, to to uh, to succeed at this mission, and I was going to continue to push, and I was going to continue to press, and I I really I really didn't think that much about about how it was going to end or, or for me personally but there also became a time where um it it was starting to get really apparent that uh that we were we were going to leave Afghanistan and that was my biggest fear that we were going to go in here I was going to get these people to to trust me and my guys and that we were we were going to to leave them. So there was a definite point in time where I knew that it 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 wasn't going to end well, and that uh, I had to I had to prepare the uh, the 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 tribal people that had been so wonderful, just so wonderful to us, uh, you know, for for that time. With that being said, day one, day one. I, I told Malik Norafzal and I told Haji John Dodd and, and Haji Ayub and all of the rest of them that I worked with right off the bat, I told them, we are not going to be here forever. Hmm. We have a limited period of time. I can't tell you how long that is. I don't really know. But this is nothing more than an opportunity for you. That's all that this is. This is an opportunity for you. I want to I help you in that. I don't know how long we're going to be here. But I'm going to be here as long as I can. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I held to that. So I, um, the perception of me, I, 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 I knew some, some people loved me and some people hated me. And so I just, I just felt like I just, and, and I tell people, I, I didn't always, I didn't always do um, what was right. But I always, always did what I thought was best. Right. And there was a difference there. There's, there's a lot of dichotomy here. I mean, we talked about the whole T. Lawrence versus Colonel Kurtz thing, Lawrence Afghanistan. There's a, you were told by a mentor, and this is in the book, that you're the best soldier I've ever known and the worst soldier I've ever known. Yeah. Again, in a wonderful yeah. dichotomy. And, and, and to be perfectly frank, losing your top cover was problematic because 
for those that didn't like what you were doing, uh, you provided plenty of ammunition yeah. for them to come after you. And it had mm -hmm. nothing to do with the mission itself. Yeah. And it had everything to do with like a lot of what we've already been talking about is, mm -hmm. um, and, and you can chalk this up to our, our VA system or the military medicine of not recognizing certain aspects. I can be honest, I, I'm, I'm not a doctor, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, but I read about you and I say, what the hell were you doing over there? Other than winning the war, right? But <laughs> medically sure. and psychologically, sure. why were you there? And so talk a little, can you talk a little, I know you've been very honest about this in the past, mm -hmm. but can you talk a little bit about, um, you gave them the opening in many respects to come after you using the UCMJ. Sure. Right? Not that your mission was failing, mm -hmm. but other ways to come after you. Yeah, well, there there was there was kind of two sides to that. There was the 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 operational side, which which they have um, they have uh, uh, operational guidelines, for instance, that you can't operate outside these guidelines. Well, when I first got over there, I had uh, just a, a very good siege assault of commander who I'd had a long relationship with, who granted me a year long level one conop, which meant. And I know that people might not totally understand, but which meant that I could pretty much operate, task organize, do missions. I could do anything that I wanted in this specific area on the ground, minus raids, direct action stuff. If I was going to do any raids or any direct action stuff, I had to go through the same process as anyone else. And again, as an aside, you know how many Afghan homes I went into during this entire thing uninvited zero okay i, I was gonna ask also before you move forward how many americans did you lose on your command while you're in afghanistan none yeah so zero is the number there too just so, yes. so people understand what we're yes. talking about okay, yes go ahead. yes yes um and uh, so there, there were guidelines for instance such as you couldn't do operations w w with less than four special forces qualified personnel I'd never had four Special Forces qualified personnel the entire time I was out there. Uh, I mainly had um, a bunch of fantastic uh, infantry soldiers with me. So I, right off the bat, every time I left the wire, I broke that. Uh, they said that you had to take an, an 18 Delta Special Forces medic on every single operation. Well, I only had one. Right. And I was always more concerned about... Uh, about being outside of the Kalat and there being some type of major uh, attack on the village and casualties and stuff like that. So I would usually uh, leave the 18 Delta there. So right off the bat, I couldn't, I couldn't even operate under the operational guidance. So there, there, there were things, you know, like that. And I could go on and on. They, we couldn't shoot mortars without the SODIF commander's approval. Are you kidding me? I mean, we're out here in the middle of nowhere. We have no ability to... I, I'm, I'm going to shoot my mortars when I need to shoot You're my mortars. You're not calling in 155s, but yeah. there aren't any... Yeah, yeah. no. There, there, there is, you know, there is, there is none of that. Uh, same thing with uh, conducting low visibility operations. You know, you drive around Afghanistan and you're up armors and your RGs and all of that. Yeah, that, that's, that's one thing. But there was many times, I would say 75% of the time I operated there, we needed to get from point A to point B or we needed to, to do something without attracting attention. And so we call them low visibility operations. That is how we operated. I mean, that is just basically how we operated. So there was a lot of operational thing. At the end of that year, 
that 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 con op ran out and the new commander would not give me another level one con op so now i had to operate basically the way everyone else did i could not do that and survive right it was i i I couldn't now go back after all of this and do these other types of operations so every single day when i woke up i was breaking all the rules and then the the other side of that was the the um the personal the the personal stress that i that i was under um which involved uh i i i had uh had many many injuries um part of which was from multiple id strikes uh just i had a headache for and still have one i've had a headache for about 10 years i have to sleep I have to somehow, somehow, um, you know, there, there has to be some escape for me. And, uh, of course, that's when, you know, they got into the, the alcohol. They got into the painkillers. They got into the sleeping medication, which I've never said, never said that I didn't do. Right. Never, never, you know. Uh, but ironically, it was actually pretty funny. The, uh, the lieutenant who claimed that he he uh thought that i was medicated and wrote the uh wrote the the thing that he sent up to hire um i specifically remember uh that day in that uh me and uh, another sf guy and a handful of afghans walked about 10 kilometers uh in the mountains and we captured a uh Taliban provincial leader we captured him and when I got back from that mission I was as probably as exhausted as I had ever been after any mission and yeah I took some pain medication and uh, was exhausted and probably did look like a zombie yeah. because I felt like one right and so, yeah, those things, those things, uh, those things went on, and uh, I wanted to stay in the fight at all costs. And so, uh, you know, that's 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 what I did in order to survive. That's that's it. So you can talk a little bit about the end. I mean, about how it all kind of came to. to is it? We have on. So the the reason you're here uh, in Washington D.C. Uh, is you graciously came out to the opening of the new museum where we have a lot of your artifacts on display. And one of those, and again, this this shows how willing you are to kind of face the consequences, is the letter of reprimand that you mm-hmm. received from on high. Um, you've received a lot of words of support also. Yes. Uh, David Petraeus called you the perfect counterinsurgent. Mm-hmm. And a lot of your men, and certainly there's a record of keeping your men alive, as we mentioned. Um, but it all kind of came crashing down. And the reason there's a lot of support out there for you was because there was this pushback from the Army. So can you talk a little bit about how that kind of came to an end. Well, as as I said, a a, a you know a, a report got sent up, and you know at that at that point, you understand the the the, the military machine, the bureaucracy has no choice. Yeah. They have to they have to do, uh, you know, they have to do uh, what it is. And I just it was during this time that one of the most phenomenal things happened, which involved Anne. And uh, uh, if if there was ever any doubt how close the Afghans were to us and and uh, how much they cared about us and how much they cared about Anne and the team, 
uh, as this process was happening on the ground, uh, my my uh, Afghan local police force and uh, everyone basically uh, and took Anne by herself and whisked her out of the uh, out of the province, which is just another fantastic story. But uh, yeah, they they came and got me and uh, made me turn over my weapons, my cell phone. Um, and, uh, you know, put me on a helicopter, uh, sent me back to base, made me shave, and uh, which was a horrible experience cause due to what the, the beards meant in that culture. And uh, it, really, it, really, it really went downhill from there. And, and with much retrospect, you know, I, I understand why they had to do, why they did what they did. They had to. I wish they would have handled it with... Uh, with a little bit more honor, with a little bit more respect. I think that if they would have handled it differently, the mission would have been more successful continuing on. And I, there are things in, for instance, a letter of reprimand and other things that I could dispute or I could try to explain uh, that I chose not to. But there is, there is one part of the, uh, you know, the official uh, documentation that was out there that I unequivocally uh, deny and uh, my guys would too, which was that I, I in some way unnecessarily ever put their lives right. at risk. Um, that simply is just not true. I did not do that. And um, so it was a very, very, very difficult time, you know, to be told that, that I'm a di- disgrace to special forces. Uh, it's one of the toughest things I've ever been told. Uh, being a Green Beret was the, the proudest thing I had done in my whole life. It had always been very, very important to me to be a warrior. Uh, I thought that's what Green Berets should be. Um, and uh, I, I, put, I put everything that, uh, that I had into that. And uh, you know, I mean, to me, it's one thing to kind of say, look, this new army, the way we're doing things now, really you don't work in it so let's kind of get you out and i kind of get you to to the va to get some treatment it almost seems like stripping the sf tab was an insult that just they kind of did just to be kind of assholes about it i mean from again i i i just met you guys we had long conversations over the phone about the artifacts and stuff i'm trying not to take a side because i'm supposed to be an apolitical museum professional Mm -hmm. and i can see their perspective when it comes to a lot of things that was going on here. I mean, we haven't talked about the fact that, that Anne probably wasn't supposed to be where she was when she was <laughs> and kind of things like that. And she's very been open about that regulation-wise UCMJ. But it seems to me the stripping of the SF tab is just obnoxious. Um, and I, I'll go on record right now saying that they could have easily, easily retired you or even, you know, other than honorable or whatever they want to do, even dishonorable. But the whole idea of going through that process to take the SF tab away, after all, you, you'd earned it multiple times at this point, yeah. just seemed to be kind of an, an absolute, uh, just unnecessarily mean in many respects. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's funny how that turned out, and, and I, I will definitely go on record as, as saying this. Uh, the two best Special Forces officers that I know, uh, which equates to... The two best soldiers that uh, I've ever worked alongside or trained um, have had their SF tabs taken from them as well. And when I look back on my career and I look now at everything going on around me, if if 
what the army or special forces or whoever, if what they are saying is, is that I am on the same level as these two guys, then I'm happy about yeah. that uh, because they were absolutely fantastic, fantastic officers. And what happened to them is just, just it's just, a, it's just a tragedy. And so, if they want to want to roll my name up with 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 theirs and throw it in the trash, then uh, I'm I'm okay with that. And we know T. Lawrence had a pretty rough time when he went back to England, also. So. Yeah, he did. He so, did. and let me let me wrap this up by asking you about writing the book because um, for those that a lot of people have read this, this was this. This is a pop, I mean, it's been out for a while, a very popular book when it came out. I wonder about the pushback from on high, number one, when you wrote this. Um, and basically, in many respects, by coming out, and obviously now we, you, by marrying Jim, the person that you were embedded with, um, is there any kind of trickiness when it comes to journalistic objectivity with this? Or are you even trying to throw that out the window and say, I'm writing about what I saw and what I know, and here is the story, and like it or don't like it, I don't care. Yeah. Um, well, in, in terms of my status, um, I had I had left the Washington Post and become an author in order to do this project. Um, it absolutely would not have been ethical for mm -hmm. me to report on Jim as a Washington Post reporter while I was in a relationship with him. So basically, um, I had reported on Jim before I ever met him. Mm -hmm. Um, and once we fell in love, I stopped ever reporting on him. So I drew a very clear right. line, but I think that everyone knew me as this Washington Post reporter, so that got sort of blurred. Mm -hmm. um, but I, so in this, putting on my author hat, um, I felt that on one hand, I felt that Jim's complete honesty and openness about what he was doing was the only thing that made it possible for me to write this account because it, it would be, um, I knew that he was not hiding anything or holding anything back. Um, there were certainly all sorts of people I had covered or written about for whom that would have been impossible. Um, so just from an author standpoint, I knew that I was going to get a, um, an, a straightforward account. I wanted to, I wanted to write this narrative um, nonfiction account, which um, it's sort of like a war memoir mm -hmm. in a way. I wanted to write it because I, I knew going in that whatever happened with what he, him trying to implement one tribe at a time, that it was going to be worth documenting. Right. I also knew that with the army, with its historians, was not, did not do a good job of this. These were very very sanitized accounts um, that were very politicized that weren't really getting the nitty gritty of, of what happens when you spend a team in to live in an Afghan village. And so in a way I felt like, hey, you know, first of all, um, authors, uh, journalists break rules all the time to gather the information they need every single day. And we would never get what we need to know um, for the public or for anyone if we didn't break rules. So I felt that uh, documenting this was going to actually, in some level, help special forces, help the military. Um, I also felt that it was the first, I had I had been asked many times, hey, you've been covering these wars, you should write a book. But there was never 
there was never anything happening that I felt was compelling enough to to make me step away from the day-to-day coverage of the wars to capture it. And I felt that this offered genuine hope and promise based on all my experience, everything I knew, that it offered promise. So, yes, I believed in it. And having been a war correspondent, having seen the suffering of war, um, what it means for people in their daily lives, was there a part of me that wanted to see a successful strategy do well, make a difference, change the course of a war? Absolutely. So on that level, was I, 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 was I objective? Yes, in the sense that I applied all of my journalistic skills to this. I was meticulous in fact-checking for the book. And one of the things that, that Jim knows that I said to him over and over again we can't put anything in this book that is not accurate. It is got to stand up to all scrutiny. And I was bent over backwards, questioning, re-questioning, checking, re-checking facts to make sure that it was accurate. So all of that accuracy was my, my bedrock, my Bible for writing this. Everything is true. It's so extraordinary that it's hard for some people to believe, but it's all true. But had I crossed a line in becoming an advocate, in becoming a believer, in, in becoming a participant, yes, mm-hmm. I did. And, and, and in, that, in that sense, it's, it, it's, it's a memoir, it's, it's a personal account, um, it's, it's not journalism. Right. Um, well, that's what makes it a unique story. I mean, it's something yeah. that like, I, I went into this one when it first came out, knowing very little about it, I grabbed it going, oh, this is gonna be a relatively straightforward account and then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, wait, the author is a big part of this story. And it just kind of gave it this different flavor to it. The book is American Spartan. It's been out for a couple of years. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to read it, uh, it's absolutely fascinating. Again, not only because of the story of Jim Gant, but also the story of Ann Scott Tyson uh, and how they came together and how they now um, are moving forward in their lives to do bigger and better things. Um, take the look at it. Um, not only that, but the, what we talked about, One Tribe at a Time, the pamphlet. Uh, read it if you get a chance. You can find it not only at several places online, but I think someone's published it now to where you can grab it, uh, actually a paper copy of it, if for those of you who don't like reading a computer, uh, to see what Jim's ideas were uh, and kind of go back and harken back to the original ideas of not only Special Forces, but back to T. Lawrence himself. So Jim and... Thank you for so much for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Hey, thank, thanks a lot, Vince. It's been great. Great to be here. Thanks, Vince. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTL SpyCast. That's INTL SpyCast. Talk to you next week. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. 
We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now. <laughs> 